hold your hat. He wasn't anyone's Messiah. He failed to fulfill the vast majority of the prophecies that identify the Messiah. End of story. This is not my notion of the Messiah. That is what the Bible says. Ending the foreign occupation of the Holy Land by the Romans, of course, is just one of the prerequisites that must be fulfilled before anyone can be identified as the Messiah. Wait a minute, the Romans are gone. The only lamb suitable, because I had talked about the Passover lamb, the only lamb suitable for Passover has four legs and wool and is without blemishes. No human could ever be acceptable for any sacrifice for any reason at any time. This man doesn't believe. He is an unbeliever. That idea, he says, is blasphemy that Jesus should die as the Passover lamb. No human could ever atone for another. No, sir, only a human could atone for others. What he doesn't know, the only path in the Bible for taking away sins is through the law, which spells out the requirements for repentance and atonement. Folks, I'm talking to a guy that wrote that three days ago. I'm not talking about some historical stuff. Jesus did not triumph over anything. He rotted away in his grave centuries ago after failing to fulfill the majority of the prophecies. The Bible constantly repeats the absolute requirement that every word of the law must be kept exactly as written forever. In Christ Jesus, that's true, isn't it? But only in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about there's nothing in the Torah. The Torah, do you understand? Torah is the five, usually first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, we call it, uh, in seminary. First five books written by Moses. There is nothing in the Torah that even hints at any way that the law will be suspended. Quite the opposite, the Torah, the, book of, the books of wisdom and the prophets all keep repeating the absolute necessity of keeping the law. He hasn't read Jeremiah or Ezekiel. For they said there'll be a new covenant and the old one will pass away. Wow, everything bad that happened to the 12 tribes happened because they neglected to follow the law. Yeah, that's exactly right, because they swore to it. They swore they would keep it. Everything good that happened because they returned to keeping the law exactly as it was written. Worshiping a failed Messiah as a false god will not save you from anything. Continuing to do so merely compounds the myriad of sins you are accumulating. Well, well, well. I've already got my myriad of sins. They've been washed away by the blood of one Jesus Christ. You see what you have to encounter? Would you think we'd encounter this kind of stuff today? 
But there it is. And he's not the only one. You know what my response starts with? That makes me want to cry. It's absolutely true. This man is as lost as Hogan's goat. Sorry for the Missouri reference, okay. (laughs) It's amazing. What is my answer and how do you answer that? It's fairly simple. Preach the gospel. Can I change this man? No. Can I argue this man into belief? No. Can he think his way into belief? No. Jesus said it. Except you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. How are people born again? By hearing the gospel. God is pleased to use the word preached to conduct the work and to accomplish the work that we call the new birth by the spirit of God. My job is not to tell the spirit what to do. My job is not to convert. My job is to preach. And that's what I darn well intend to do. This man's soul is on my mind. And he makes me want to cry that he's looking to an empty law and the sacrifice of animals to answer for his sin. My, my, my. That's really hard for me. Sorry to say, but that, that's painful to have to hear that kind of thing in a person that somehow I want to see come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him. So one way of doing that is to teach the title of our lesson this morning, Introducing James. Turn, if you will, to the book of James. In the New Testament, right after Hebrews. We have some work to do before we start in a verse-by-verse exposition of this little book. It's uh, uh, reasonably short, five chapters, um, and uh, we should be able to manage this in, what, a year or two? No, I'm kidding. Uh, We hope to be... I'm not going to promise a, a, a chapter a week, but uh, there, because there are several, um, if you will, d- routes that I want to take, we have to talk about uh, justification by faith alone versus justification by works. We have to deal with that. And then, of course, we have to deal with that passage where it says, call the elders together, anoint the man with oil, and pray, <laughs> so uh, uh, keep the oil at home for me. It's, <laughs> it's a cultural thing, not a religious thing, uh, whatever. And so we have some, a number of things to deal with in the book of James. But this morning, I want to speak to some of the basics of this marvelous little book. I say that about every book, don't I? <laughs> I say that about Romans, I say that about Galatians, I say that about just about everything, even my favorite book. No, I won't say that. I can't say that. Uh, 
uh, Teresa, you would criticize me for saying that because every book is my favorite, isn't it? Um, I have a, some sermons at home called Habakkuk and Me from the prophet Habakkuk. <laughs> and the pastor is preaching Zephaniah uh, in the evening and it's a marvelous little book. Uh, and gee, you know, you can, uh, these, the Bible is a wonderful thing. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that James is at the top of the heap or anything like that. It's not ahead of Habakkuk. That's funny. Most of you don't even know how to spell Habakkuk. <laughs> and I don't either. <laughs> I think I would misspell it if I was asked to spell it. But Habakkuk and I uh, said something about that prophet. He stood on, uh, you know, he challenged the Lord and he said, I'm going to stand on the rampart and see if you do this. <laughs> Ever been there? Yeah, I have. So uh, I can relate. Beautiful book, but so is James. James is maybe even more important than Habakkuk. And it, because it has to do with us today, how we manage ourselves, say, in the house of God with our fellow Christians and the, and the community that we live in. How we communicate. There's so much here. It's just amazing. And so I think that we want to not miss any of that. And so we'll try to take it as slowly as possible. Who wrote the book of James? Already asked that question and somebody said, James. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, uh, we had the right answer. Or at least in my estimation. And in the major scholars of, the, uh, of our era that the author of this little book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was also a chief uh, leader of the church at Jerusalem. If you'll remember, after Jesus is crucified, did you know that the Bible says that after he was crucified and raised from the dead, he appeared to James? Read that in the book of Acts. Um, but James, the one that we're speaking of, that we believe to be, I'm going to accept it, I hope you do too, that he is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was not a believer in the beginning. Not at all. He grew up and did not believe, and it was a post-resurrection encounter that many believe brought him to faith. I, I will buy that. Now, he immediately became an important person, not because he's the brother of Jesus. And did you uh, read uh, verse number one? James, comma, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say half brother to Jesus, the Savior. No, no, bondservant. And then every, just like the Apostle Paul says, and all those who are faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are his bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we believe that it was James. Now, an interesting part about when that was written was that James was a belated conversion. 
But let me tell you, this guy didn't waste time. He uh, was involved, if you remember, great persecution set out against the believers there and they were scattered throughout. If you read the book of Acts, the Jews were scattered across the world. But the church at Jerusalem kind of held on to its own. Some of the leaders there stayed in Jerusalem and James was one of those. And so he writes this letter. He says, go back to the text itself, James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And so he's talking about his fellow Jews, but have been converted. He might be talking, as some, uh, uh, as some say, some of the scholars say, he might have been talking about all Jews that had been uh, scattered in the diaspora, the spreading, they spread them throughout the world and chased them away. Uh, but I believe that it had a Christian intent that, uh, that it's uh, 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 written primarily to Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it would probably apply to just Jewish people who are not yet converted as well. And they would learn from this. And James had some sort, in a short period of time, James had become an important, perhaps one of the better, uh, more important than the church of Jerusalem and such. He's an important figure. Now let's talk a little bit about when that happened. When did he write? Let's say roughly. I, I don't like to do this because so, there's so many different views. When did, just, when did Jesus die? Let's use the year zero. <laughs> and uh, we believe that Christ died somewhere around the age of 30. And if we use the year zero, that's, uh, 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 he was approximately 30 years old. All right. Uh, James is writing A.D. 40, a mere 10 years later. After the resurrection, he is converted and he becomes a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He rewrote this book about A.D. 40 to 45. I'm not going to be exact. These things are extremely difficult to fix. Whatever happened to this James, the brother of Jesus, anybody know? Reading the book of Acts. He was martyred, killed at about A.D. 62. An important date because A.D. 62 was kind of, uh, the Apostle Paul was in uh, uh, full uh, evangelical mode in A.D. 62 in Corinth and other places of uh, around the Mediterranean. But James gets martyred in about 62. And so we have an early book, one of the earliest in the New Testament. It's amazing. But that fact alone may help us when we try to negotiate that issue about his view on justification. Now, we use the word justification. I'm not going to run there today. I'm not. Um, in, uh, we'll get to that in due time. Uh, but 
we use the word justification as sort of a technical term. That is being declared righteous before God. Like a judge, boom. Despite the offender's sins and everything, the judge says, not guilty. Okay, that makes him not guilty. Okay, he gets to walk. And in that sense, justification. I do not believe that, that, that James is writing about that kind of forensic justification. He's writing about justification before God, justification before the world. And how do you do that? You better believe it by your works. But that doesn't mean that the works justify you in the forensic sense. They do not make you righteous. They are a response to that. And we will, we will cover that when we get to it. But this is around, it's an early letter, approximately 40 to 45 AD, by one James who has risen and ascended to the, one of the leaders at the church at Jerusalem where the rest of them have been scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. Then there is, let's suffice it to say, you may have a different view on all of that in your studies. You may have come to other conclusions. That's okay. I'm not one to hold to what the scholars say. If it's not written, uh, flat out written in the scriptures, it is a difficult task to determine all of these things. Are you aware that James was uh, an early controversial uh, in terms of the canon, in terms of being approved as part of the Bible? Who, who was the major opponent who called it a right straw, S-T-R-A-W-Y, epistle? Luther. Luther, amen. Who said that? Right here. Oh, that was Matt back there. He, yeah, he knows. Luther said that. And it was all about that thing in chapter 2 about justification. He thought that, that James was absolutely disagreeing with Paul. Indeed, there, there grew up a whole bunch of writings that said that James was really not happy with the apostle Paul. And so he was correcting him. Well, well, well. <laughs> Don't you just love the blather that goes on between um, uh, scholars on that kind of stuff? No, it's totally unrelated. Not totally, I take that back. But just as I explained, the justification in James is not the same as justification in chapters 4, 5 of Romans. Not. But we, there's no need to argue that until we get there, then we will. So that is something of an introduction of the uh, book of James. But we got, we got some more. You remember last week that I put you through this excruciating thing about um, uh, figures of speech and I listed them out. And you got glassy-eyed and, <laughs> and everything. James uses them liberally and I didn't give them to you just for my learning or my uh, what do you call it influence on you 
No, I'm preparing you for understanding not only James, but a lot of other writings in the New Testament. This man knows his stuff. He knows his Greek, for instance. Yeah. Here's this guy from, what, Bethlehem? Uh, how in the world does he use such elevated Greek? Now, Greek was a common language there, but this is more than just Greek. This is elegant, elegant Greek. This is skilled Greek writings. This uses those figures of speech we studied briefly. I'll go over them with you again, especially when we get to um, uh, describing the, the book. Aphorism, A-P-H-O-R-I-S-M, aphorism. The apostle, uh, excuse me, James uses them extensively. And uh, uh, figure of speech. You know who, uh, I'll give you an example and then we'll stow that until we get there. Uh, I went over and I was stimulated by one writer and he said, a popular rock group came up with a good one, aphorism. You don't always get what you want. Anybody know? Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stone. Okay, okay. All right, so I, I'm confessing right here in front of you that I've heard Mick Jagger. <laughs> you don't always get what you want. That's an aphorism. That is a, a figure of speech. That is a little thing that teaches wisdom. You don't always get what you want. I'm not making a claim for Mick Jagger. I doubt if Mick is a Christian man. Uh, but, but he sang a song and they wrote, somebody wrote that song, and they used aphorisms. Interesting, isn't it? I'm not teaching you this stuff just for the uh, academic, whatever you want to call it. It's all over the Bible. Jesus himself uses this, the same uh, approach, I should say, James uses the same approach as Jesus. Yeah, and they're all using, uh, uh, Jesus is not, I'll say this again, Jesus is not a real door. It's a figure of speech. We all understand it intuitively if we think about it for a minute. Jesus is the door. I am the door. Um, I am the light. That's both figurative and literally true. Uh, ask those who were at the transfiguration. But and nonetheless, these are techniques of language that we need to be, if not knowledgeable about, we need to be aware of them that they're being used right here in the book of James. They were used in Hebrew too, in Hebrews too. I hope I pointed out some. And but we'll see it here extensively in the book of James. He uses these things. He is no slouch when it comes to the Greek language. Now, how does this dude from Bethlehem come down to Jerusalem and is able to write an exquisite Greek? 
That's a good question, isn't it? Well, there's a lot of people that wrote then who would hand off their writings to some people, experts in the Greek language, and they'd clean it up for them, that kind of thing. So it isn't impossible for me to understand that James is a learned man and that he set out to learn these things and that he used others perhaps to clean up the language and stuff. It's totally um, uh, a good possibility that he did such things. It doesn't mean that he has to be a Greek scholar. But I do want you to know that his Greek in this book is exquisite very uh, expert in the language. You know, as I tell my detractors over on Quora, who call all these people like uh, James and Mark and Luke and all those, uh, what? What do they call them? Uh, Bronze Age uh, goat herders. (laughs) Yeah. Would that they could write like this man. Would that I could write like this man. Goodness. Um, the only person I know in here is, is uh, Teresa. Teresa, you're kind of like this. Only you make up for the exquisite language in the length of your letters. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm dumb teasing her. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like reading a letter from, uh, uh, the, who's our missionary? Saeed. I just read that and I put it up here on Pastor's Bible. Did you ever read that? 10 pages of single spaced front and back. <laughs> but it is such a blessing. Oh my, you can't hardly put it down when you start reading that. And uh, 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 it, it is powerful stuff. Here, though, I want to affirm that James expresses great skill in the Greek language and the use of Greek figures of speech, including a favorite of his aphorisms. All right. There are, I, there's a kind of an outline, but I'm not going to go into it for it. Let's go to the text, okay? James chapter 1. Introducing James, right, Matt? That's what we called it. He's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're saying that he was a half-brother to Christ. To the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, interesting enough, uh, the church is never... Uh, described as 12 tribes. And so we think that it has a Jewish target. I'm sure it could have been shared uh, across the entire Mediterranean area. And I, we believe that this is a, one of those circular letters that it was intended to do exactly that, to go throughout the area to Jewish audiences and to be read, which was the standard way in the... In the uh, Do you know they didn't have copying machines in the first century? Okay. (laughs) Or printers? No. Uh, So they read them to congregations and to house churches and the like. And this is aimed at that kind of thing. And he says, greetings. That's straightforward. 
my brethren, he calls them, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Hmm. Interesting. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, complete, that you may be complete, there's that word, teleos, and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, stop, full stop. Wisdom as used by uh, biblical writers is not about superior intellect. It's about being wise and being able to uh, figure out what it is in behavior that will please God. Wise. That's wisdom of the biblical wisdom. We need to keep that in mind. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Some of you missed being here early. You should always come early. Okay? I'm kind of teasing, wink, wink. James was rehearsing his song. If you missed that, too bad for you. (laughs) Get here early and hear that. Uh, He gave gifts to James liberally. For a reason. Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally. Did he say to all? He did. (laughs) There's not a soul that doesn't have a gift. That is to say, those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ have believed on him. I know that you sit back there in the pew and you say, well, what could I do? What could I do? But that's more about the structure of the church than it is really about the gift that God has given you. Perhaps we need to be wiser in using the gifts that, uh, that God has given liberally to everyone. He does. I'll I'll explain though. Mine is not singing. Just so you'll know. All right. (laughs) There's one way that I sing well. I sing loud or loudly. Okay. (laughs) That's about the best I can say. Um, But it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. Asking in faith. You need to examine yourself, your own lives, and to determine what has God given you. He says he gives liberally to all. You're the all. For he who, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. I don't know about you, but I just got challenged. Come on, don't you have doubts sometimes? Even in prayer? Oh, I'm sorry, but I do. Okay, Uh, I can confess. I see a head nod. We know, we've been there, okay? We're not perfect by any stretch. And we sometimes doubt. 
because somehow we think that that gift that we're seeking or that whatever it is, is way too much. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So you go home, and I want you to write that on a great big poster and put it up above the place where you pray. My wife won't let me do that and messes up the dining room, okay. (laughs) But it's it's a good thing to be reminded of when we go down to pray. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And then comes this sobering truth. Oh boy, I better clean this. I don't like to finish on a downer. But nonetheless, let's let's do it. For let not that man, the doubting one, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The important element, faith. Faith. How does it say that in Hebrews 11.1? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I use that a lot with my atheist friends, of my scientist friends. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then we'll finish with this because the uh, 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 James uses a word that is only here twice done in the book of James and nowhere else in the New Testament. Isn't that interesting? He is a double-minded man, literally two brains. One that's faithful and one that doubts. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the James starts off strongly, doesn't he? <laughs> he kind of goes right at your throat. And that uh, uh, actually predicts what we're going to run into in this marvelous little book. He, he does not mince words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. All right. Um, please be reminded of those figures of speech. We'll be talking about them. He begins almost immediately uh, with aphorisms um, like the Rolling Stone. No, it's not like a Rolling Stone. That was only an example. Short, um, short, pithy statements that have some wise meaning. Our Lord used them constantly in speaking to his disciples and to those around uh, him. So we'll, we'll look at both the content of the book of James plus the stylish is, issues as well. Uh, I don't think that, that these guys wrote in such fine Greek that we should simply neglect that idea, that Reality, we should learn it. You'll all be starting a Greek language course next week. <laughs> Once again, I, I have to resort to uh, Teresa because Teresa remembers that when I was at Holland, Michigan, at Spurgeon Heritage Church, 
we had Wednesday night sessions of learning the Greek language. <laughs> uh, we, didn't, we didn't take them through all of that. But I, uh, we did it primarily to convince people that the meaning of the text of the Holy Scripture is about the language that it was originally written in, and it was Greek here. And so uh, 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 if you want the most accurate rendition, you have to know a little bit of Greek. Thank goodness we don't have to go to school anymore to get that. There are so many excellent helps for us that we can, we can study the Greek Without, with little difficulty uh, if you're serious about this kind of stuff. All right, we'll pick up at verse nine next week, but for now, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, when we read this marvelous book, which we have done so many times, and uh, Father, we trust that we won't skip over the beauty of it as we rush to read it, but to contemplate on the truths that it teaches and even the style in which those truths are communicated. Help us as learners to see this and to appreciate James, the writer of this book, but to appreciate more, just as he would have it, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior as much as James. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.